We're in a series here called Jesus is Famous. Jesus got famous somehow. Somehow he got famous. Uh, um, as a church, in fact, we say the reason we exist as a church is to help make Jesus' name famous. The Holy Spirit has the primary role of opening eyes and softening hearts to Jesus. The Holy Spirit does that, uh, but also invites us in to help make, make Jesus' name famous. Uh, this is interesting. Somebody said to Jesus in John chapter 7, you can see this, someone says, you can't become famous, Jesus, if you hide like this. Context is important. If you find this in the Scripture, you'll see it. And they go on to say, if you can do such wonderful things, then show yourself to the world. And of course, um, we know that Jesus did wonderful things. He did wonderful things that we see right in the Gospel of John. And they often came through personal encounters that Jesus was having with a person that ended up being a powerful, meaningful conversation. And this is how we see and savor who Jesus is. This is how we see and savor who, uh, what Jesus has done. And it comes through looking at encounters that Jesus had in the Gospels with individuals. And these encounters oftentimes took the shape of a conversation. This conversation here that we're going to look at today, conversation number three, Jesus has under the cover of darkness when a... Um, very important man approaches him. Somebody who is significant in the, the community. He is the religious professor, the religion professor, who stops over to see Jesus and has kind of a secretive conversation with him at night so that it can be private rather than public. And we're going to meet that person, uh, a great artistic version of this encounter here where Jesus in John chapter 3 um, is meeting someone named Nicodemus. So, uh, who is Nicodemus? Let's, let's meet him here. There was a man named Nicodemus. He was a, Jew, a Jewish religious leader and who is a Pharisee. And after dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Now, it's a, the only way we understand this story is if we understand Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? Nicodemus is a um, powerful and prosperous man. He is a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, a collection of powerful influencers here in this particular region of the country, in this particular religion. It's an assembly of the Hebrew High Court. So he is well-known politically. He is well-known in the justice department. He is educated. He's a lifelong student of Torah, the, the, uh, the books of uh, the law that were passed on to the Hebrews. He is also morally superior. He's following all the ceremonial laws. And we know that because he was a Pharisee. And we also know that he was devoted he was so devoted to the law that he became someone who enforced the rules. So not only did he follow the rules, but Nicodemus was somebody who enforced the rules. Um, you might ask yourself, well, what does it look like if someone goes around enforcing the rules? Some of that can be seen in what you see in the Middle East with the way that um, um, religious theocracies um, are cracking down on the immorality of women who in the, like Iran and other countries like that, um, they have a morality police to punish women who aren't wearing the hijab correctly or they're otherwise not following 
the oppressive laws of Islam, and they have a morality police. Well, um, this, of course, is a completely different religion in that it's the Jewish religion here in this particular uh, time and place in history, but he's a part of the group of people that are so devoted, they're also enforcing these laws on other people. So he sits as some kind of moral authority. In other words, you couldn't have somebody in a community with any higher religious status than Nicodemus. Um, if you go to, if you went to a pastor's conference or a religious uh, um, professor's conference, um, you would notice that Nicodemus on his name tag, if it didn't have it already, he would have written his over the top on his own in his own handwriting, reverend, because he wants everybody to know that he holds a powerful position of clergy, right? So um, I want you to notice something here because this is going to be important to understand, understanding this encounter, that Nicodemus is the opposite of who Jesus had just spoken to earlier in John chapter 3, which was a Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and she basically says, why are you talking to me? Is this a mistake? Because men, much less rabbis, they don't talk to women, especially women from Samaria. She is a marginalized, uh, unimportant, uh, weak, and... Um, wounded person that Jesus spoke to. And I want, you to, I want you to see here that Jesus is now talking to the opposite person. He's talking to somebody who holds all the power, holds all the prosperity, someone who is, in fact, um, uh, a significantly uh, holds st significant status in this culture. So, he is not weak, and he certainly is not broken, and he is certainly not... Um, emotionally unraveled. You got the picture in your mind of who Nicodemus is? And that's important for you to recognize. Uh, oh, by the way, while we're talking about what uh, Nicodemus is like, also we might notice this. He says, Rabbi, he's talking to Jesus, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. So it's also quite likely that Nicodemus was more humble than the other Sanhedrin or Pharisees. Because imagine, Jesus is young. He's a young man. He has no known religious tradition or, or training. He doesn't have the um, uh, certifications, the accolades, the reputation that these Pharisees have. But he is still willing to say, Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you. you. There's some evidence that you're kind of an important, kind of a set-apart person here. And when Nicodemus um, refers to him as Rabbi, this shows that he's perhaps more open-minded than the other um, religious leaders. So, does that answer the question, why would he come at night, because he comes at night not only so that he doesn't get accused of things, but also so that he could say, I'm, I'm open-minded. I want to learn. I'm humble enough to recognize that there's something special about you. So here in Nicodemus, we have somebody who has got his life altogether. We have somebody here in Nicodemus who is successful, disciplined. He is someone who is uh, admired, has a reputation, he's moral, he's religious, and even open-minded. And in this encounter that Jesus has 
with this insider, Jesus is forceful and direct. Now, when he's speaking to the Samaritan woman earlier in the chapter, he's a lot more subtle. He kind of goes around and about before he really gets to the hard-hitting truth. But not, this is not how he handled Nicodemus. With Nicodemus, he led with the hard-hitting truth. He, le- he, uh, um, he came firmly and forcefully right to the point right at the beginning. Um, and so, here's what we discover. Here's what he does. Jesus presses on his smug self-satisfaction and his self-reliance. This is how this is going to go. We're going to see how this goes, and we just need to see that what, what the words that follow here are Jesus pressing on his self-satisfaction. He's satisfied with himself. I like to say it this way. He's kind of impressed with himself. He's impressed with himself because other people are impressed with him. And Jesus doesn't gently lean into him. He confronts him right at the front. And here's what he says. He says, your self-reliance, your self-satisfaction is not helping you in your relationship with God. It's not helping you. It's helping you in your relationship with people but it's not helping you in your relationship with God. So look what Jesus says to this well-put-together influencer who has status and prosperity. Jesus replies to him, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I want to just kind of pause on this phrase, born again. We've mentioned it here in several of... um, our messages in, in, in the recent past, but this is important because this phrase, born again, is used in our culture. In our society, people who use the phrase born again, by the way, have you noticed it's not a term of endearment? Have you noticed that? It is, it's kind of loaded, right? The first thing I want to point out about the phrase born again is it's a Bible word. Because I tend to think, Well, if people use the word born again and it's kind of a loaded, backhanded criticism, which we'll kind of diagnose here in a second, then I want to disassociate myself with that phrase born again because I don't want to be associated with the perception. But then I have to remind myself, but I can't disassociate myself too far. Do you know why? Because this is a Bible word used by Jesus. So what I would like to do is grab a hold of that phrase, and then redefine it for us. And then we can better understand what's being said when someone says, one of those born-agains. I mean, even some of you who are born again, I know when you hear that, you're like, ew, really? So, common nowadays, when someone is using that phrase, born-again, um, what they mean is these, these born-agains are different from normal people. They're weaker, right? They have a hard time coping with society, with their lives. Sometimes what they mean is um, they're more emotionally unstable than the rest of us. People who are born-again, it is thought, are willing to accept anything as long as it makes them feel better, even if it's crazy and looney tune, and even if it's out of bounds, even if it's... Like you just can empty your brain and latch on to something. That's what the born-agains are. They're emotionally weak and broken. And then people will often think in terms of um, 
A person who's born again is somebody who is broken, and they were broken so bad they had to have a rock-bottom experience where there was divine intervention, and all of a sudden they had this epiphany, and their life just kind of flipped upside down because they were so broken that they hit the ground so hard, they hit the bottom so hard, their life shattered, whether it's through addiction or whether through it's some kind of traumatic event, but they needed a dramatic turnaround to get them on the right path. And... These people, that our society might say, and if that's um, you, if you've done something that bad and you need to be born again, then good for you. And um, it's also possible that it's set aside for people who need very, very rigid authority structure. That our society thinks that if you're one of those born-agains, you, need an authorit- you, you somehow need an authoritarian religious movement to know what to do with your life and know what kind of decisions to make for yourself. In other words, being born-again cer- is for a certain kind of person. And a lot of people say, well, if that's what somebody needs, then go ahead. But normal people don't need that. Are you with me? Do you get that sense sometimes that that's the portrayal? Um, Sometimes I see crazy people being interviewed on TV and, and, I, and I see them start to talk about that they're a Christian and then I just hope and pray, please don't go all the way to I'm, and I'm born again. Like, stop there. Let them think you're some other version of something. But don't, don't say the born again part. Um, so, but this is not, and this is so important to see, but this is not Nicodemus. Nicodemus is not weak. Nicodemus is not emotional. Nicodemus is not broken. He's not having a life crisis. And Jesus says to him specifically, you need something beyond who you are and what you're doing. Even though you're not weak, even though you're not broken, even though you're not emotionally needy or you haven't haven't hit rock bottom, what does Jesus tell him he needs? Jesus explains to him that you must be born again. You must be born again. And this is why this phrase still has its roots in the Christian community and is flourishing among people who are following Jesus because there is a recognition that Jesus, in his own words, tells religious people, that's not enough. Nicodemus, you represent all of them, the best of them, but there's something more. You need more to see the kingdom of God. You need more to be a part of the kingdom of God. What he's telling him is this, Nicodemus, when you were born, nobody needed your help. You were born physically, you were born physically with no help from you. Your mother birthed you all by herself. She gave you the gift of life and you didn't control how it happened, when it happened. It was a complete and utter gift that you received. And then Jesus is now saying there is another birth, there's a second birth that's required in which God does all the work and it requires nothing from you. You are unable to give yourself a second birth. You are unable to do for yourself here to generate some kind of rebirth. That salvation is a free gift just like your natural physical gift was a free gift of life. And it's given by grace. And no moral efforts, no merit of your own can can bring it to you. 
Shockingly, Jesus says, you must be born again. Let me put it another way. Shockingly, Jesus says, everything that you've always been doing to get yourself where you are and to believe what you believe and to live the way you live doesn't matter to God. What you need, you still lack. Now, why can Jesus say that? How does Jesus... What, what's the reason He would say that to someone who is basically, in the eyes of people, sinless, also following all the ceremonial rituals and routines of cleansing and so on? How can Jesus say to him that, uh, sorry, it's not enough? And here's the reason. Because Jesus is working with a deeper understanding of sin. Jesus is, dis, is, has a working knowledge and awareness and alertness of how much deeper sin is than most of us think. Now, in our culture, most people, I think, I haven't done the research, but I'm pretty sure most people think that sin is making mistakes. Uh, or they go the other extreme. They think sin is murdering people, right? And some people will say, well, look, of course I sin. I'm just human. I make mistakes all the time. Other people would say, I'm, I don't know how you could call everybody a sinner because relatively speaking, I'm really not that bad. I haven't killed anybody, murdered anybody, no felonies. And so they find themselves kind of in between saying, I'm not terrible. In fact, I'm actually pretty good relative to some of the knuckleheads that I work with and live next to and play sports with and go to work with. But here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying there is an understanding of sin that helps you grasp why all that you're doing uh, doesn't merit salvation. Why would Nicodemus be regarded as a sinner in need of salvation. Why would Jesus tell this good man that he's done essentially nothing to help himself be saved by God or to find his place in heaven? Because Jesus understands how deep sin is. He understands how, for, how far down under the surface it goes. And here's what he understands, and here's how he kind of describes it over the course of the Gospels. Sin is trusting someone or something else besides God for your salvation. It's trusting in the church you attend, the, 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 the religious leader who you follow. It's trusting in your own effort. In fact, uh, Pastor Yon explains this in the Roots track um, in, 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 in pretty good detail. I uh, had a great Super Saturday yesterday where people uh, got a chance to hear what exactly we mean when we say trusting someone or something else besides God for your salvation. It's called functional saviors. When I need something, when I need hope, when I need comfort, when I need peace, when I need joy, I turn to someone or something other than God. Also, it means putting yourself in the place of God. Think of Adam and Eve. It's putting yourself, right? It's the idea that I'm the king of my life, I make the decisions. I direct my life. I am the one who rules and reigns over all the, 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 the pathways of my life, the decisions and the priorities and the values of my life. And along with me ru ruling and reigning over my life, one of the parts of my life is I've kind of fit God into it. Right? So the idea here is that you're in the center of your life. You're the king over everything, and somehow God is subject to you. That's another way, another aspect of deeper sin. Then thirdly is this idea, that you become your own Savior and Lord. And this kind of shows up in two ways. The first way it shows up is that someone would break moral standards 
in order to pursue happiness through substances or sexuality or um, some other pleasure and happiness, that to get that, somebody would decide they're going to break God's moral standards. And then on the other hand, someone can do the same thing by trying to um, live a good life and, and please God and get everything they want out of life by following all the moral standards. And that somebody who follows the moral or religious rules, like living a good life or um, living with some moral excellence in their life, and somehow it essentially requires God to bless them. It requires God to show them favor and to enhance their life in some way or to answer my prayers. In other words, this is somebody who trusts their own intentions and someone who trusts their own Um, efforts to merit God's favor. They have become their own Savior and Lord. What they're doing, they rest their confidence in, is enough for God to say, you win. Here's my favor. I'm going to answer your prayers. I'm going to make you one of my own. I'm going to do special things for you because of your own efforts or your own good intentions. In this case, Nicodemus, Jesus says, you religious people are looking to your moral superiority. You are looking to your own moral efforts to give you significance and security. Now, if you've been around the church a long time and you've been following Jesus a long time, you know how easy it is to begin to feel better about yourself is as simple as comparing yourself to other people, right? Because most um, sincere Christians don't stand before God and say, God, I just want you to notice my winning streak, Most of us aren't like, God, I don't know if you've noticed, but I wanted to point this out. I'm kind of undefeated this year. Nobody really says that if they're a sincere Christian. But I tell you how it shows up. It shows up like this. God, I know I have failed, and I know I am flawed. I know I am sinful. But man, compared to the Red Sox fans, I mean, compared to you just... You just find yourself in your heart, not on purpose, subtly, subconsciously favoring yourself or comparing yourself to other people, and then finding that in that comparison, you're able to kind of get your nose up over the top of those people and then look down on them. Different socioeconomic status, different race, gender, culture, different political convictions. And over time, we find ourselves as ongoing Jesus followers, not necessarily coming before God in weakness and in need and in humility, boasting only in Christ Jesus, but instead approaching Jesus with a sense of accomplishment, a sense of, a sense of presence that I may not be perfect, but there's a lot of other people who are even more imperfect than me. That's how it shows up. Or comparing your own faithfulness to someone else. I am so much more faithful to them. Look how unfaithful they are. Look how unfruitful they are. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about people walking around saying those things, but it's something that is bubbling and brewing in our hearts. And we, have a, we don't have Nicodemus's position, but we have Nicodemus's disposition in some way. So this message that Jesus is, is, is telling Nicodemus is for all of us, even if you're not in the Sanhedrin. And I don't know of any of you who are in the town of Clay Sanhedrin. So, 
non-religious people will look for their right standing before God in their successes, their achievements, their wealth. Religious people will kind of get themselves prepared to stand before God in their faithfulness, in their holiness, um, in their devotion to moral standards, right? Both of them have the same sin. It is somehow allowing yourself to become your own Savior and Lord. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So there's sin under the surface. Not blame, but um, we, we, can be, we can be very easy to spot behavior sins, but it's much more important to God that we're aware of motivation sins, under the heart desires, priorities, and so on. So um, now, what is surprising about this? What is surprising about this particular last one here, becoming your own Savior and Lord, is that most of us as Christians spend a lot of time talking about trusting God. We say we trust God, we mention we trust God, we, we ask people to trust God, we certainly want to trust God. And it's ironic, I think, or surprising about religious people is that even though we're constantly talking about trusting in God, if you think your goodness, your good behavior, your good intentions, if you believe that that is contributing to your salvation, even a little bit, you're actually resting your trust not in God, but resting your trust in your own self. That's the irony of it, right? Trust God, and I trust Him to do things, but I trust myself to uh, uh, win His favor in His presence. So there's a little bit of a surprising twist there. And while you may, in this case, not be committing adultery, and you may not be deceiving people, you may not be um, casting off restraint, but your heart will increasingly grow more prideful, our hearts will increasingly grow more self-righteous, subtly condescending, insecure, even a sense of arrogance, so much so that people start to find us hard to be around. People find us, when we're gathered together, really hard to be around, and in some cases make the world of the people who love us the most miserable. So why is, what is Jesus telling Nicodemus. Here's what he's saying. Insiders and outsiders. Both insiders, religious people, and irreligious people have the same need. They need to be regenerated. They need a new heart. They need something to happen that's just beyond just learning to be faithful. And we talked about this in the Roots track yesterday. Sometimes the reason people say, you know what, I really admire the Christians and I know some really good Christians, but I could never be a Christian because there's, I really couldn't commit to that. Or they say, um, I already know I have some real uh, vices that I would have a very difficult time giving up. What they, in, what they mean to say is, those rules and regulations, I couldn't keep them. And I think that's a reasonable thought. The problem with that thought is that it in no way reflects what's required to be a part of God's family. What are, what's required to see the kingdom of God. What's needed is a new heart. It's regeneration. A lot of us think, uh, I remember... Um, one of my lifelong friends has said to me several times, um, I, I so admire your faith, Dan, and I know for me, I started strong at the beginning, but I just couldn't keep that lifestyle going. I just couldn't keep the commitment going. And for him, it is doing Christian things. 
And then I always say to him, I say the same thing every time, it's funny you should say that because that's the reason why I'm still walking with Jesus, because I can't keep it going. You're literally uncovering um, how it's motivated. So it's not recommitting to Jesus, it's literally a regeneration of the heart, which means to repent, to admit that you have a need. It is asking God to receive you. Um, and to be regenerated. Jesus says the same things to insiders that He says to outsiders. That you share the same sin. Nicodemus, you share the same sin which is separating you from God as the Samaritan woman that I just spoke to at the well. Or the same as all the people that you're harshly uh, punishing for not following the law perfectly or the way that you want them to. In other words, religion professors on some level... Uh, are the same as, this is going to be a good one, you ready for this, as pimps and prostitutes. Isn't that a good one? Write that down. It's got two Ps, it rhymes. No, it doesn't rhyme. It's an alliteration, that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> it rhymes. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> the same. The same. And, 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 and for religious people, this is disheartening. It's disheartening. Because religious people... We hope it counts for something. And certainly living righteously and living a life of holiness, devoting ourselves to God and growing in sanctification and fruitfulness, it does matter. We're talking about salvation. We're talking about what does it take to join God's family? What does it take to see the kingdom now and forever? And what it takes is the same. Imagine, it's the same for the pimps and the prostitutes. Oh, I got another P. And the Pharisees. Outsiders and insiders, it's the same. And that's something that's beautiful in the kingdom. Of, in the Christian faith, it's something that's beautiful. And also the same reason why a lot of us get cringy when we see somebody in the Christian faith being elevated, 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 and held up as some moral standard of excellence. Right? Anybody else get cringy when that starts to happen? What's going to happen? Tell me what's going to happen. They're going to fall. And then all the critics are like, see, it's a joke. It's so junky. This whole thing is one big fantasy. No, it's not, because that's not our message. Our main message is not live righteously. Our main message is since we cannot live righteously on our own, God sent a perfect, innocent lamb who lived righteously in our place. And then we say, well, I'm going to trust God for that to count in my place. I'm trusting God for that to count in my place. And then we see this, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but we just taste and see how beautiful this righteous, innocent lamb is who is Jesus. We see how beautiful he is, and we taste and see his goodness and his beauty and start to cherish it. And then all of a sudden, we're like, I'd do anything for him. I'd do anything for him. I'll be morally right. I'll, be, I'll live justly. I will show mercy to people who don't deserve it. I'll be gracious to my spouse. I'm going to do it because I have completely enjoy who Jesus is. Now, the only one who is able to do that is someone who's been regenerated. And that's so important because, and, and, and like I said, everybody needs to be regenerated. Everybody needs this grace of God that he gives us. So how are we born again? Now, if you are someone who likes to learn, I just want to set you up for disappointment. How are, we gener how are we regenerated? How does that happen? If you like to learn, here's the disappointment. We don't really know. 
We don't really know. Let me show you what I mean. Jesus says, humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to the spiritual life. So, Jesus, what do you mean by that? Doesn't tell us. Doesn't tell us. Here's what we do know. Um, we do know that something, this is so, this is, this is it's like otherworldly. Something happens caused by the Holy Spirit. Now, how many of you have ever sat here among us at some point or other during the service, you've sat here among us, and you start to get emotional and cry, and it's not because the preaching isn't as good as you wished it was? But would you raise your hand, and this is risky, it might be just two of you. How many of you have just come to tears, raise your hand, and you're not quite sure why? Okay, look around at everybody. Can Can I mention to you why I think you're crying? Because somehow, subtly, the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart. And your need hears something that's true. And that truth, with your brokenness, comes alive by the work of the Holy Spirit. It can't be controlled, because if it can be controlled, you'd hold yourself together, wouldn't you? You don't know if there's tissues here, or even if they're a one-ply and you're just going to start smearing paper tissue all over yourself. You don't know what's going to happen. You want to hold yourself together, but you can't. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the Holy Spirit is reminding you of things, refreshing your memory. The Holy Spirit is lifting you up. The Holy Spirit is encouraging you. The Holy Spirit is saying, look at Jesus. Treasure Jesus. And the Holy Spirit does something to give birth to the spiritual life that occurs deep inside of our heart that is really out of our control except that we humbly come before God and say, I'm in need. Do you know the people that are, having, are really struggling for the work of the Holy Spirit in, the, in their heart aren't the people who are terrible sinners. They're the people who are not convinced they need God. We call that hard-heartedness. Um, in the Old Testament, these people are called stiff-necked people. They are pretty impressed with themselves. They don't need God. And so, so Jesus, I love this. So Jesus says, uh, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, Nicodemus. That's his Old Testament name. I just gave it to him. So don't be surprised. Don't you love this? He is saying to Nicodemus, Nothing you're doing in your life, all the faithfulness, all the moral high ground, all the rule following and enforcing, none of it matters to bring you into the kingdom of God. And and Nicodemus, I already know that's surprising to you. So don't be surprised when I say to you, it's not enough. Something has to happen in your heart where you say, I need God. I'm submitting myself to Him. And then the Holy Spirit brings this new heart. This is what the Scripture says. This hard heart of self-righteousness, pride, I can do it on my own. It's self-reliance. I'm living for my own glory. Is replaced with a heart of flesh. And that heart just gets tender to the work of the Spirit. And you just start to say, oh, I'm not enough. I'm afraid all the time. I'm insecure. I'm hurting people. Most importantly, I don't have a regard for God. I regard myself more than I regard God. And there's just this sense of humility that starts to happen in our lives. So, can we better understand it? Well, maybe Jesus is going to explain it to us. The wind blows. He's explaining this. To, this is why. Let me tell you ahead of time. This isn't very helpful. 
right? So he's going to explain it, but he's still going to leave it mysterious. This is what he says. Um, so don't be surprised, Nicodemus. You must be born again. And about being born again, the wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Do you know what Nicodemus is an expert at? Explaining things. He's a professor. He explains things. He explains the law. He explains God. He explains moral conduct, behavior. He's an explainer. And here's, what, here's Jesus saying to him, but you can't even explain what it would take to be regenerated and be a part of God's kingdom. Dummy. My words. Something only the Spirit can do. It's a mystery. Something deep inside. So, what does this mean? It means that for people who say this, it's not enough to say I'm a good person. Jesus is teaching us through this encounter that in our Christian faith, being a good person is good for society, but it doesn't count in God's kingdom. To get into God's kingdom doesn't count. And, and listen, the I'm a good person line is that's huge, right? That's huge. I'm a good person. I don't know why I would have to repent of my sin. I don't know why. I'm a good person. Now, um, I mean, people have told me, now, Pastor, I know you're religious. I'm not religious, but I'm happy to tell you I'm a good person. Um, now, imagine this. Imagine a single mom who teaches her young son from a very early age, son, there are three things that I'm expecting from you the rest of your life, and you are going to contribute to our world in a positive way, and I want you to always tell the truth. I want you to be respectful of women. And I always, always, always want you to do what's right. Always do what's right. Always respect women and always tell the truth. Now, imagine later in life, this young man grows up and he becomes wildly successful. He not only is wildly successful, but he's incredibly respectful to all the ladies in his life. And at the same time, he's successful and respectful he doesn't ever reach out and contact his mother. He is a man of great reputation, a man of great wealth, a man of great influence and success and achievement who has no relationship with his mother. And I wonder what you think of that. I wonder what you think of that. I mean, I think it's incredibly lame and I also wonder what you think that his mom thinks of that. When his mom, single mom, grows him up the right way, and he goes on to live the right way, and then he enjoys his own success, separate from and disconnected from any relationship with his mother, after she gave him all she had, after she taught him and trained him with everything she knew how, it's my opinion that he owes her loyalty. He owes her love. He owes her relationship. And so, I imagine this is the same thing that God does. He gives us everything we need. And then if we run off 
And our idea of, of living successfully and thriving is being a good person, but having no relationship from the very one who gave us everything we need to be successful and thrive and achieve and so on. No relationship with God. When you stand before your heavenly father, just like when this kid stands before his mother and says, I know we didn't have a relationship. I know I never contacted you. I know I abandoned you and left you alone. I did my own thing. I was really successful. Thanks for the tips. This is very similar in my mind to what happens when we imagine standing before God and say, you gave me such great instruction. I was such a good person. And Jesus even occasionally was a good example. And Jesus is thinking, of course, God knows I made you for relationship with me, not to go out there and prove that you're a good person. I made you for relationship to me. I'll determine, by the way, and decide if you're a quote-unquote good person. So it brings me to this. If there's a God, Jesus is saying, if there's a God, you owe him everything. You owe him everything. What does that mean? Well, let's start with our heart. Start with our heart. Don't worry about owing him whatever, whatever else that you could imagine or think that it is. It's, we start with our heart. He deserves to be at the center of our lives. He deserves to be in the center of our heart. And by the way, if you are at the center of your own life, then, then there, there is no difference between you, me, and Nicodemus, Adam and Eve, or you name it, any one of those. So... Um, Really quick, a couple things to think about here. Um, where do we start? Where do we start? Well, the first place to start is just stop and turn. Stop what? Stop trusting in yourself that you can do enough to win God's favor, to earn it by merit. That He somehow um, is impressed with your form of salvation. Jesus, by the way, is the only Savior, that if you gain Him, He will satisfy you forever. But at the same time, if you fail Him, He will forgive you forever. Your career, your wealth, your moral standards, your moral performance, by contrast, cannot love you and forgive you. Your moral standards cannot um, suffer for you and die in your place. Obviously, we know only Jesus can. And secondly, don't just stop and turn and refuse to trust yourself for your own salvation, but also taste and see. This is relationship. We taste and see that Jesus is good by relationship, right? We're talking to Him in prayer. We're listening to Him in reading and all the other ways we can listen to the truth about who Jesus is, especially in the Gospels. We taste and see what he did and why he did it. He becomes more beautiful. Our heart fills up with affection. And eventually, it turns our hearts away from the things that enslave us. And eventually, we use this phrase a lot around here, eventually, eventually what we find out is that our new affection for Jesus replaces old affections. That's what the gospel is. Our heart grows in worship instead of um, pain and sadness. And this is the same for skeptics and believers. It's the same for insiders and outsiders and everybody in between. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we pray that insider or outsider today, your truth would come alive in their hearts. We're mindful here that you're at work by your Holy Spirit and you have a beautiful, loving, selfless, 
desire to save souls, to regenerate hearts. And church family, just prompted to take an opportunity here when we're all together without any other big scene or making you the center of attention. I just want to give you an opportunity to to slip your hand in the air and say, it is my humble response to open my heart to the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Would you slip your hand up? Who am I preaching to? Who am I? Yup. Anyone else? Got it. Good. More and more. Yes. God, I'm just grateful that you're making hearts soft and tender and you're doing it by your Holy Spirit. And we're grateful today that you've pointed out to us that we can leave all of our own value behind and instead we can stand before you boldly in your presence and then know that we're going to receive grace in our perfect time of need and then we can spend the rest of our lives boasting in our weakness. Standing only to boast in knowing and trusting Jesus. And I pray that that would happen in the hearts of people that are here in person watching in our live stream. Father, save souls. We pray for regeneration to happen as you hear people that you're pursuing call out to the name of Jesus to stop and turn from trusting themselves and who want to taste and see that you are beautiful and good. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing together and celebrate all that God is on our behalf.